Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. It's summertime, and as the song goes, the living is easy. The sun is warm and the air is sweet. Come and join me in the cool of the night with a good book or two. While we're away, instead of the normal nighttime on still waters program, for a couple of weeks we'll be spending a little time together, enjoying some readings. The stern doors are open to the night, coffee pot is still warm, and the biscuit barrel is close by. Make yourself comfortable, and we'll begin. The Alice Rose had been built for Joseph Campling on Sefton's boatyard at Tuss's Bridge, near Coventry on the Oxford Canal. His older brother had inherited their father's old boat, Sarah Ann. Both were owner-boatmen, known on the canals as Number Ones. Their work either picked up independently or as now subcontracted to one of the bigger carrying concerns. Now that this family was growing up, the previous year, Joseph had taken the boat back to Sefton's and had a tiny four-cabin fitted. With Jacob now a teenager and Annie now getting older too, he'd taken the decision to lose a small part of his loading capacity, rather than risk the wrath of the local health inspectors who had the duty of checking the boats for compliance with the law. A law that restricted the number and ages of children who could share their parents' accommodation. That night, he and Beth sat in the well and smoked a last cigarette apiece. Below, Annie was already curled up asleep on the side bed. Jacob had disappeared into the fore-cabin he shared with little Johnny. After a few minutes, they too climbed down inside and were quickly abed. The morning would see an early start, up soon after daybreak which meant around five o'clock in the summer day, and on their way by six. Late afternoon would see them unloading the barrels of beer onto Banbury Wharf. The next morning, after an overnight stop in the town, they would be heading back to Coventry and the coal fields. I came across this book quite by chance, and it's by an author that I've not come across before, although I see that he's written quite a bit on canals and particularly on working boaters. And it's The Longest Trench by Geoffrey Lewis. That's a pen name of Steve Miles. And it's, I think it's a self-published book by SGM Publishing in 2014. And I'm flagging up the self-published bit because you might have a bit of difficulty in finding his books online 
The Canal Bookshop is probably the best as it's got quite a good selection of his titles there and I'll put the link below. As I say, I came across it really as one of those serendipitous happy accidents when I picked it up at a book swap. Initially, I, I couldn't quite work out whether this was based on an actual historical account or whether it's fiction. Um, I have a feeling it's fiction, but there's some really detailed research here and also some extremely clever ideas and the way in which the story is framed. The book's essentially the tale of two working boat families on the eve of the First World War and leading through the war until the announcement of the cease of hostilities at 11th of November in 1918. Besides being a really lovely book and charting a rather sweet love story between two characters. It's not a romance, but that is a, a lovely theme going through. The more I think about this book, the more I'm struck by the, the clever devices that Jeffrey employs. And these allow us to read about and experience the lives of working boaters through their own eyes as they try to work their way and their living around the West Midlands and then latterly down towards London during an incredibly turbulent time. And having the two families provide lots of nice points of contrast. We are first introduced to the Campling family, who run their own horse boat, the Alice Rose, carrying coal and other goods from Warwickshire to Banbury. And then we're introduced to the Kane family, and they run two company boats, transporting liquid residue left after gas has been extracted from tar. And the second boat is handled by his three eldest daughters, both boats are pulled by mules. And having these two families allows Geoffrey to explore the different dynamics, economic as well as practical, that are at play. The way all the family are used within the day-to-day -day work in working conditions. How even though Janet Kane is in charge of the D, the second boat belonging to the Canes, the overall captaincy is still maintained by the patriarch Alfred. And the tensions, but also importantly, the, the really good reasons for this are explored later in the book after the two older girls go off to a factory to help with the war effort. And Harold, the eldest son, takes over Janet's role in being in charge of the D. And also having two very different cargoes being transported, one dried solid coal and barrels, the other liquid, also highlights the advantages and the disadvantages of both, as well as giving detail about how these products were transported. And what I find particularly interesting is Jeffrey's take on the merits and otherwise of private ownership of a boat, of being a number one, and that of running a company boat, a boat that's actually owned by a company. Geoffrey acknowledges some of the downsides of company boats, particularly being tied to specific jobs and routes, as well as the upheaval of having to move onto a different boat at very short notice. 
as one of Cain's daughters stoically expresses it. It's been her home for most of her life, but no doubt a new boat will become their home quickly too. However, Geoffrey is also careful to highlight the advantages of a company boat. They were shielded from some of the very large maintenance bills, and there was also more security when work became harder to find. With not if completely guaranteed routes to run, but at least a better chance of them than if you were bidding for them alone. I have to admit that the portrayal of this relationship between the company and the boaters appears at times to be a little at odds with some of the other accounts that I've read, and there may be just a chance of rose tinting going on here, but it also acts as a really good and I think effective corrective to that challenges the assumptions that these relationships were always fraught and bitter and the boaters were always oppressed by the the management systems of the, the companies. And it's subsequently given me a lot to think about. The advantages of running your own boats was the fact that you did have the pick and choose of what routes to run, what cargoes to carry. But the downsides were in times when work was tight, it was more difficult to get work, it was far more tenuous, and economically you were continually walking a very, very narrow line. This precariousness of living, and coupled with the rumours of war and then the declaration of it, upsets what's already a highly tenuous life. Canals were already losing out to the railways, competition was harsh. And this underlying feeling of uncertainty and growing unease amongst the characters within the book provided a really interesting backdrop when reading it throughout the summer of 2022. The contexts are very different, but that feeling of disquiet and concern creates some really interesting parallels with the characters in the book and with what we're feeling at the moment. And what The Longest Trench does really well is offer a window onto an often overlooked aspects of Boater's family's lives. This alludes to another really clever technique that's employed by Geoffrey. Whilst we the readers are treated to some spark note style sketches to keep us abreast with what is happening with the war. And this is really helpful in helping us to locate chronologically the scenes much more securely within their history. The characters themselves have to rely on either word of mouth, sometimes from literate wharf workers or toll keepers. However, one of the characters, Mrs. Campling, can read having been born on the bank, in other words, outside the canal community, before marrying into that boating community. And one of her key roles when the boat workers finished for the day was to read the newspaper reports to all the boaters gathering in the pub at night. And in this way, news was a crude piecemeal, filtered through word of mouth and newspaper columns. And 
this idea of literacy and the spreading of news and newspapers is also discussed by Tom Rolt in his book Narrowboat, where he describes how one of the working boaters at Banbury would read out the newspaper to all the boaters gathering around her. I'll, I'll read this section from it. So this is from Narrowboat. This is not from The Longest Trench. Being off the land, Mrs. Hone was the only member of the family capable of reading or writing, and was regarded with a certain awe in consequence. On Sunday mornings it became customary for her to stand at the cabin hatch of the Clygate as before a lectern reading extracts from the Sunday newspaper in a slow, expressionless monotone to a rapt audience, consisting of the rest of the family and any other canal folk who happened to be within earshot. They habitually stood in a silent group on the towpath, never interrupting, but pondering each word as though it was a pearl of wisdom from some remote and godlike intelligence. Literacy and education is something that runs through the longest trench. And the characters keep on coming up about how do you balance this premium of being able to read and write with the, the loss of a much needed and able pair of hands, particularly when work was tight and free help was needed. But it's the small details that I found so fascinating. Things I'd sort of considered and yet ever really thought about. Like, what happens when a child falls seriously ill? These were the days before the NHS. How do you conduct a courtship when the two parties are on different boats in different parts of the country, particularly given the very rigid moral codes of the time? And those codes seem to bear quite a few parallels with those that I have found within gypsy and traveller communities. And those of us who live abroad and struggle, was it last year getting hold of the census and then trying to fill it out? Or hitting the same problem again and again when you're filling out official forms and you don't have a postcode, might find some comfort in the strategies that were needed to be employed by the illiterate boaters when filling out important governmental forms. Those times, after all, were just as bureaucratic as ours. Also, anyone who walks along a canal towpath for any distance is going to be pretty soon struck by the number of canal-side pubs, either still in use or converted. And I'd not quite grasped until reading this book quite how essential they were to the people and the families who worked the boats. And Geoffrey makes it really clear, and it's quite understandable, as beautiful and snug as a working boat boatsman's cabin looks on modern restored boats, as a living space for a family with four or five growing children, it just wasn't feasible. So pubs essentially became their parlours and were also an important part of community support and cohesion. 
and the landlords and their families could offer that support network for help or information for medical, social and any other form of aid that might be needed. And however, just as importantly, they also offered that essential stabling for the horses and mules that were used to pull the boats. Now, I have to admit, I just assumed that they were tethered on the towpath for the night. But again, as Geoffrey shows, in the sometimes really challenging and severe weather and working conditions that they encountered, leaving them outside just wasn't feasible. And whilst all the families in the book clearly have great fondness of their animals and therefore take the greatest care of them, something again I have come across in other accounts that I've read, on economic grounds alone, in order for that family to survive, they needed to look after what was essentially their engine. So in this respect, pubs again offered an essential resource for them with stabling. The Longest Trench is a really good story that will teach you a lot. The title itself is a very clever play and expresses Jeffrey's primary motive in writing the book. On one level, it refers to the constructed nature of the canal. It's basest form. It's just a long trench filled with water and the families get to run their boat on one of the longest sections of that trench. However, it also alludes to the trench warfare of the First World War and the often overlooked part that the working boaters played in that war in a myriad of different ways. Whether it was dealing with the loss of work as manufacturing moved to armaments or siblings and children moving onto the bank to take up factory work with the very real fear, and quite often it turned out to be the case that they would never return to their old way of life on the cut, or the, the dangerous work of carrying armaments, or also of conscription. Geoffrey Lewis does a really wonderful job in creating what I found a moving and rather wonderful tribute to a generation of working boaters who in many ways have been forgotten and for restoring to them their voice. Now I realise that I haven't read much for this summer reading and that's partly because the story is framed mostly in dialogue and so it's really difficult to find a section that's going to make sense without having to read the whole thing or giving lots of background information. However, I will finish with a passage. It's, it's only a short one, but it's a passage that answers an age-old question that's been nagging in the back of my mind for some time. And that is, what happened when a boat that's being pulled by a horse or a mule met another one coming in the opposite direction? Did one of them have to untie? Well, Geoffrey gives us the answer. Harold's own crew sat in the front of the cabin, their backs to him, chattering as young girls will, even if there's nothing to talk about. Suey, Emmy, when do you get off? A hold of buddies there, buddies the mule. There's a boat coming. They looked around at him and then lifted their heads to look forwards. Suey raised an arm in acknowledgement and stood up as he leant on the tiller to bring the stern in close to the towpath. She jumped, landing easily 
but grimacing back at him as mud splashed from under her boots, before running forwards and taking the mule by the bridle and slowing it to a standstill. Convention dictates that canal boats pass on the right. For horse boats, that requires the outside boat to come to a halt, its tow line going slack to sink and rest on the bed of the canal, while the inside boat and its horse cross, passing over the fallen rope. Mary and Harold both steered away from the towpath on the left, the boats drifting to a stop opposite their respective mules, held still by the father and Suey. It was only as the Avon came to a halt that Harold looked up to recognise the approaching boat, its pony just passing Libby with a toss of its head, and a smile spread across his features. Another boat was following, two hundred yards behind the Sarah Ann. Not unusual, the munitions boats often travel together for mutual comfort, aware of the potential hazards of their cargo. And it's on that coming boat is his love, Annie. I'm going to finish with a section that's right at the beginning of the book. And again, it'll give you a taste of the flavour and a little bit more detail about the, the practicalities of working a horseboat. This section begins with an account of the canes just beginning their next journey and they're having to turn the boat round to, to wind the boat. And without an engine, this is done by using a barge pole. Harold stood on the foredeck, the long shaft of the barge pole in his hand. His mother waited on the towpath with Livy the mule, ready to take up the tow. Alfred and Harold pulled the boat backwards for a short distance to where the winding hole, a widened part of the narrow canal channel, allowed them to turn it around. There, Harold drove the fore-end out across the water into the tip of the triangle cut out on the bank. His father pulled in the opposite direction, the stern swinging around, the rudder brushing the bank until they were facing south again. Harold pushed the fore-end over until he could throw the tow-line to his mother. Snatching it out of the air, Mary dropped it into the splice loop onto the hook of Libby's harness, Libby is the mule, and gave her a gentle slap on the rump. Go on, Libby, good girl. The mule walked slowly forward until she felt the drag of the boat, and then leant into the harness to get it moving. As it picked up speed and cleared the way, Janet and her sisters repeated the same procedure to get the Avon ready to follow. The two older girls wielded the shafts, their younger sisters waiting with the mule, Buddy, and then they were on their way, following their father's boat a hundred yards or so behind. They made good time through the brightness of the summer afternoon. Ripening crops in most of the fields that they passed between, filling the air with their warm, dusty fragrance. Many of those farmers' fields were connected across the canal by bridges. Wooden bridges that lay just above the water level and had to be tipped upwards out of the way to allow the boats through. It was Harold's job to run forward, 
lift each bridge and hold it clear while both boats passed beneath. Then he would run forward again, either to catch the D or, on some stretches, to get to the next bridge in time to open the road for it. So close did those bridges lie to each other. Energetic work, but he enjoyed it. The freedom and exercise of being on the towpath, instead of just sitting on the boat, and at each lock they passed through, he would take pride in working the paddles and the gates as quickly and as efficiently as he could, even timing himself sometimes, with the pocket watch his parents had given him last Christmas. This is the Narrowboat Erica, signing off for the night and wishing you a night of happy reading and relaxation. Good night.